I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would help us be ready at any moment for your return. I thank you for the scripture. I thank you especially for the book of Daniel and the encouragement we find there. Lord, we're in deep mysteries here, and I pray that you would bring understanding and knowledge and that you would help me as I preach. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not someone who has often longed to know the future. I've been usually quite content to live in the present. However, um, 2020 is a kind of a different year, and I find myself asking just in my own head questions that make me think I might actually like to know a little bit of the future. Maybe you've asked some of these questions as well. When will COVID-19 end? I mean, that's probably one of our biggest questions. Who will be in the White House in January? How is God using this time of suffering in my own sanctification? You know, he's a redeemer and he uses stuff for good. So how is he using this time of suffering to help me be prepared for eternal uh, eternal glory? I'm asking that question. There are other questions. I'm curious to know, like, who are my daughters going to marry? How long will I live? These kind of questions and lots of other ones sometimes bounce around in our heads. And of course, the biggest question is, when is Jesus coming back? When things get really hard, we, we start praying more fervently, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come back, come and restore all things. This is hard. And that's me, you know, here in a really comfortable place saying, woe is me. And I, as soon as I pray those kind of prayers, I immediately think of our friends in very hard places in this world. I think of our friends in India. I think of our friends that are doing global missions work for pastors that are in prison for their faith. I think of those kind of people, and I go, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. It's really comfortable here. I pray for them. Lord, have mercy on them. But we ask these questions along with the psalmist. How long, O Lord? When will you come? When will you bring justice? And the cries of the psalmist ask that often. I had a, um, many years ago, I had a grieving parishioner come to me, and she was wanting to be with her loved one who'd gone ahead and is in glory with Jesus. And she wanted to know, why can't we all just be there now? You know, why, why do we have to wait? And, you know, that's a tough question. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit popped into my head the passage from Second Peter uh, chapter 3. And it was really helpful because I, I was able to say, God's not slow. He's patient And there are lots of people that he wants to come into his kingdom before he returns, and that can no longer happen. And so, let's just wait a little while. In fact, let me read this paragraph to you. This is 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, and 10. This is Peter writing to a church that's experiencing persecution and suffering, and they're they're wondering why, because they thought Jesus was going to set all things right, and and time was moving on, and he hadn't. And And then he says this, "'Do not overlook this one fact, beloved.'" That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. It's interesting to me how for suffering Christians, apocalyptic writings like that 
are very comforting. To people that aren't suffering, they're confusing. But John was writing when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He wrote the, the, the book we call Revelation. God gave him an apocalyptic revelation, and he used it to encourage suffering and persecuted believers. The Apostle Paul does the same in Second Thessalonians. He's writing to a church that was struggling. And, and that Second Peter passage is saying, God is not slow. Just be patient. I think of the image from Revelation of the martyrs that are, that are under the throne in heaven that died for their faith, and they're crying out for justice. Give us justice. And the Spirit says to them, just a little while longer. And they're clothed in white robes. And they're waiting. So, I come back to the question I started with. Would you want to know the future in detail? Well, if you were really, really suffering, you might actually want to know how things are going to turn out. Because ultimately, they turn out really good. And that gives us comfort in the moment. But how much detail? I don't want to know the day I'm going to die. That would be haunting. That would mess with my head the rest of my life. But, you know, I do sometimes wonder, when will we stop wearing masks? When will the pandemic be gone? Maybe never. I don't know. We have these kind of questions. Now, Daniel 7 is writing to exiles. And you have to understand, the book of Daniel changes right here. This is like the second half of it, and it completely shifts. And this is why people stay away from it. Pastors are afraid to preach it. Christians don't want to read it. It's because it's in a genre that's not familiar to us. The apocalyptic genre is the apocalyptic comes from the word, the Greek word for uncovering. Something is being uncovered here. And I think of the Wizard of Oz when I think of that. You know the story, most of you, I imagine all of you. The great, what's he say, the, the great and powerful wizard. He's got this big green head and fire shooting out. And then Toto the dog goes over and nips at the curtain and pulls it back. And there's a little weak man there pulling the levers and talking into a microphone. I think apocalyptic genre is like that, but reversed. We're looking at a sort of weak situation, but if you could pull back the curtain, you could see real great, great greatness and power. And that's what Daniel does here in chapter 7. He pulls back the curtain, and God gives him a picture of the heavenly situation, the spiritual reality in which we live, that we miss so often. Now, with apologies, I'm skipping over the lion's den in this series for two reasons. It's the only part of Daniel you already know, And I can't do all 12 chapters in eight weeks. And so this chapter seven actually chronologically happens before chapter five. So we didn't read all of chapter seven, but let me read the first verse to you. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now remember last week we looked at the writing on the wall and that was actually the last day of the kingdom and the king. And he got wiped out and Persia and the Medes took over Babylon. It was the end of Babylon. But this, as Daniel's writing, once he gets through chapter 6, he flips backwards and tells this vision from the first year when Belshazzar came into his office as king. And it's, and it's changing the type of genre. So it, it's got a lot of symbolism, and what that does is it defies our concrete thinking. If you think there's actually a monster with 10 horns on its head, You're missing the fact that horns are symbolic of strength, and 10 is the number meaning full. So full of strength. And the sea, these four monsters, they rise up out of the sea, and the sea is symbolic of chaos. Remember in the the beginning when God moved over the waters and he brought order out of chaos? 
and he separated the land from the water. And, and until the days of like Jacques Cousteau, if you know that name, the sea was deep and mysterious and we didn't know how deep it was and we didn't know what was down there. You know, all that stuff, Davy Jones' locker and all that. It was fearful. And the sea, as you know, can get very angry and it can wipe out even the biggest ships. And so it's symbolic of chaos and disorder and evil. And what this is saying is he has this dream and these four creatures come up out of the sea. In other words, they're aligned with evil, not goodness. Now, what's interesting here is we have to be mindful of the fact that we have four things, even in our statue on your bulletin and the statue in the sermon series thing. Um, That's from chapter two. And I think, I'm guessing here, but I think what happened in chapter two is we get a worldly view of four kingdoms that are coming. And in chapter seven, we get a heavenly view of the same four kingdoms. So consider there's a statue and he has a gold head, silver chest, bronze midsection, iron legs. And we identified in chapter two that the head of gold was Babylon, followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Romans. Scholars are mostly agreed on that much, mostly. There's a slight debate, and, you know, we're close. And so when we read this chapter, there's alignment here. It's sort of interesting. Um, What I'd like to do to look at Daniel 7 is to recognize that in suffering, it's comforting for us to know that the eternal God rules the past, the present, and the future, And I'd like to take the past, the present, and the future as an outline to look at some things in here. So I want to start um, with the past. So Daniel is so accurate in predicting the kingdoms that will succeed Babylon that critical scholars, the ones who don't think that God reveals the future, that don't believe that um, miracles happen, they said this must have been written in the second century. It couldn't have been written in Daniel's day. How could he have possibly known this? And that's a categorical thing. But for those of us who believe God is actually all-powerful and all-knowing, that God is not bound by time or space, that he exists in the past, present, and future, this is no problem for him. For those of us that believe that Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death, this is no problem that he could have revealed the future to Daniel. I even, you know, this is, maybe this is wrong to think this way, but sometimes I'll be asked to pray for something, someone's going to have surgery or whatever, and I forget, and I'm like, oh no, it was this morning. I'll pray right then for the surgery, the surgery to be successful, knowing that God sees past, present, future, so he would have heard that prayer yesterday, right? He's not bound by time or space, and so he's able to say to Daniel, let me give you a picture of things to come, as well as things that are. Now, one of the problems with apocalyptic genre is sometimes it actually has a literal fulfillment, but oftentimes it's symbolic of other things, and we don't know which is which. I'm convinced that in that day, once Christ returns, we will look backwards, and we'll read Daniel, and we'll go, oh, that's who the ten horns were. I get it now. See, I don't think all of that has happened yet, but the four beasts, I think, have happened. And so let me show you why I think that and why the critical scholars, like there's no way Daniel wrote this because there's no way he could have known this because it lines up so perfectly. So consider the vision. And we, by the way, we only read the throne room picture of the ancient of days. We didn't read all of seven. So I'm going to jump back a little bit. In chapter seven, Daniel has a dream and then visions in his head. And there's a dream and there's a picture then of the throne room. And in the dream, there are four great beasts that come up out of the sea. 
And the first beast is a lion with wings. Now, understand something. Historically, uh, archaeologically, we have found in Babylon, in that region, statues of lions with wings. It was a symbol for Babylon, actually. And um, this is referring to King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, here's one of those places where it's both figurative and literal. It says, the lion had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar was not a lion and did not have wings, and yet he was caused, he was stripped of power, caused to crawl like an animal on the ground, and then was caused to stand up and give in his right mind again. That actually literally happened, and figuratively it's talking about a strong lion with wings. This is a strength icon being stripped down to nothing and then being restored. So it's pointing to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon comes. And then the next thing, it says, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. So it's a bear with like one strong arm and one less strong arm. Well, the next kingdom that comes, we know from the statue as well as history, is the Medes and the Persians were together, but Persia was much stronger and pretty quickly took over the Medes and became the Persian Empire. So it's the bear with one side stronger than the other. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So it had devoured something. It's a carnivore. It had wiped something else out. And historically, um, the, the Persians wiped out Babylon, Lydia, and then Egypt in quick succession. So it looks like maybe those are the rib bones that are in its teeth. Then after that, there comes a leopard, a leopard with four wings. Leopards are fast, one of the fastest animals, and to have four wings means you fly really fast. And so... Um, the Alexander the Great was 20 years old when he came into power, when his father was um, executed, and he had a really strong army with really competent generals that he inherited. And in 10 years, he went all the way out to India and conquered that whole region, swift as a leopard, very fast. But it says that there were four heads that rose up after this. Well, when he died, he was actually coming back from India and he was trying to set up a kingdom in Babylon and died. Not, he wasn't killed, he died. The four generals all battled and split that into four kingdoms right away. That's what happened to Greece, historically, in ancient world, when you look it up. And it makes perfect sense on this side of history. And then the frightening thing is that there's a fourth thing. It says, after this I looked in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. Okay, so now here's where we're moving from past, sorted to present. Now, the Roman Empire is that fourth one, and it was like no kingdom before it. I mean, it really did go to the ends of the known world. It was swift. It was iron is a good metal to line up with it. Um, and it was the kingdom in charge when Christ arrived and declared his kingdom. Now, scholars are not at all agreed on what the 10 horns are. And there's one little horn among the ten that is symbolic of the, the evil one, Satan. Apostle Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. So there's this rival kingdom happening. There's a little horn that takes over and starts to do awful things. Here's where we don't know. We don't know what's coming. But we know sort of what's coming. But we don't know the details of it. Now, one of the things that happens in Daniel 7 is time becomes circular. At verse 12 is a place. So at verse 12, it jumps down and it says... 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I mean, we still have bits and pieces of these kingdoms with us. Alexandria is the name of many cities, but that was named for Alexander the Great. There are bits and pieces of these kingdoms still with us, but their power has been diminished. Rome is gone, but there are elements of it in the world. And time is circular where the Ancient of Days in this vision, he, he speak, Daniel explains for a while and then kind of wraps it up and then does it again and kind of wraps it up and then does it again and kind of wraps it up. He does that in 12, 14, and 22. And in verses 13 to 14, it looks very much like we get heaven's view of the ascension of Jesus. Remember once he died and rose, he went out with his disciples um, to a hillside, and then he, he was lifted up into the clouds until they couldn't see him? Well, when you look at verse 13 and 14, it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's what happened in the ascension. Christ ascended to heaven, and as we say in the creed, he's seated at the right hand. He's, he's in glory, ruling the, the universe, and that kingdom is never going away. So his, his teaching in the Gospels, I looked up the phrase son of man, 82 times Jesus uses that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to refer to himself. 82 times he's linking back here and calls himself the son of man. And he's given dominion that is everlasting. Even now, Christ is ruling. There are these 10 horns and these lesser kingdoms, and there is Satan still doing stuff and demons and all that. That's present. But Christ is already ruling. Mark 1, he said, the time is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And in John chapter 12, right before he goes into the upper room and then to his death, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So he was conquering that little horn. He was taking away a lot of his power. And he was, he was doing a battle on, on behalf of sin, on behalf of death, on behalf of us, and won something that has ongoing effects even in this day. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the, the disciples, right before he ascended, they went to him and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore to Israel the kingdom? Because, see, they were confused. It looked like he was, he was coming to bring the kingdom, but it wasn't coming quite quickly enough and like they expected. And his reply was, you don't get to know, but you wait in the city. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So in the present time, Jesus is ruling, there is still conflict, and anyone who comes to him is invited to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are to point people to Christ. That's the present. That's what we're doing. And in this vision, the Ancient of Days is the Father, and he has glorified his Son, the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God. Now the future, briefly. In verse 23 through 27, it talks about things to come. So let me read this to you. Um, this is, this is the fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, and, and its ongoing effects with these ten horns and, and whatnot. And, and it says that um, he will speak words against the Most High. He'll be a, a blasphemer. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High. Don't get weary. 
He's going to whittle you down with temptation and attacks, and, and you're tempted to give up. Don't do it. Hang on. Just hang on. And he shall think to change the times and the law. He's going to mess with the laws of the land. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. There's a lot of debate on what that means, but for a period. And the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words, Christians are going to rule with Christ under him in this kingdom forever. That's what the future holds. That's what's coming. And so in the midst of suffering, we can go, okay, hang on. Jesus has already won the big battle. Eventually, he's going to clean up the rest of this mess. I've got to be faithful in this time. And then in due time, he's going to let Christians rule. This is incredible. Can you imagine what kind of comfort this gave to the exiles, to persecuted Christians, to John on the island of Patmos, to the Thessalonians who were, who were the early church, wondering why Jesus hadn't, hadn't rescued them? It gives great hope. Now, two quick points of application. One, lean into times of suffering because God actually uses it to prepare us for that kingdom. You can read Romans 5, 1 through 5, about how, how suffering produces endurance and patience and eventually hope. It, it's linked together. And the second thing is, bring God's kingdom, which is anywhere that his rule is recognized and surrendered to, bring God's kingdom into all areas of your life. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Where in your life or your heart is God not totally the Lord? You're holding back something. Bring that before him in this season. You're being prepared, and I, we're being prepared for, to rule with him. He's making us into his image more and more like him. Cooperate with that. But know that Christ is present to all right now who call on his name. So I'd like to do that. I'd like to invite his kingdom to come into our lives to help, ask him to help us, to help make us worthy of the calling he's given us. And I'm going to invite the music team to come up and we'll then sing a sermon response song about our beautiful Savior. So let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, we're in the deep end of the swimming pool this morning with Daniel chapter 7. But there is much hope for us here. I thank you, Jesus, that you have made available your kingdom for us, that salvation is about participating in it right now. Lord, show us any place in our life where we're not in line with your kingdom, and give us the strength and courage by your spirit to make changes there. Lord, give us patience with this time of suffering, and even the courage to ask you what you're doing in our hearts through these sufferings. We do again pray, Lord, have mercy, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you now to stand for our sermon response.